So, as you've heard, our theme for today is peace. And I just want to say thank you to the three generations of strong women that lit our candle today. So, to Jan and to Summer and Natalie and Olivia and Amelia, thank you for doing that. I love seeing a, a, the generations there getting to do that together. So we prayed again today, which we will do each Advent, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And today we're talking about a kingdom of peace. And I wonder when we talk about peace, what picture comes to your mind? Like if you'd think of what's a picture of peace, what would that look like for you? You know, Isaiah 11, um, there's a depiction of a picture of peace. In, in Isaiah 11, it talks about a wolf will live with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat, and the calf and the lion and the yearling will be together, and a small child will lead them. That's the picture of peace. And so I found this painting this week. And this painting is by Edward Hicks, who was a Quaker preacher and also a painter. And this painting um, he did in 1834. And, I mean, think about the history of that time. And he entitled this Peaceable Kingdom. And in the background, you see Native Americans and the settlers um, having some sort of peaceful trade or peaceful conversation, because that was not at all that the context of, of, of society then. There was a whole bunch of death and violence right now in our history. And so as he thought about peace, this was a picture that came to his mind where, where he longed for peace was with the Native American tribes. And then also you see in the forefront here, the image from Isaiah 11, which is, you know, you have the lion and the leopard and the kids and, and the predators and the prey living in harmony together. That's a pretty amazing picture. It is. And while we're sharing pictures, uh, Will, um, what's his name? Uh, Will Bullis uh, <laughs> has a little bit of a different take on that same passage, a little bit of a modern twist on it. Uh, one that I kind of appreciate yeah, See, yes. what I'd like to do right now <laughs> is I'd like to break out into groups and have conversations about those images. What does it bring to mind? What do you love about it? What questions arise the passage? But that's for small groups and conversations later on. At any rate, the idea that both of these artists are shooting for is harmony and peace amongst those in which there's not typically harmony and peace. So today we want to define peace. Peace, the Hebrew word for peace found in the Old Testament is shalom. And I love the definition of shalom. Shalom means wholeness and health and completion. So peace in terms of shalom is not just the absence of war or the absence of violence. Rather, it's the also the presence of health and the presence of wholeness and, and healing. And so as we talk about peace, there's two ways um, to, to kind of understand peace. There's the idea of inner peace, a state of being that, that we experience. And then there's also relational peace, peace between people and how they interact. And it, we see in, all throughout scripture that this idea of peace, this idea of shalom is closely associated with covenant relationship and with justice and with righteousness. 
Okay, so let's talk peace. As we, as we discuss Advent each week, uh, we're exploring and realizing that Jesus came, uh, bringing, this week we'll talk about peace. That Jesus is coming in his kingdom, and peace is coming into this world uh, through the kingdom of God. And ultimately, Jesus will come again and put all things right, in which we will experience ultimate peace. So as we look back at the story of Israel, uh, we see a nation desperately in need of peace, desperately in need of a Messiah. Now, the prophets came to Israel in the period of the kings, beginning about 800 BC, uh, as early as 1,000, depending on um, who you classify as that. The prophets are primarily found in the last few uh, books of your Old Testament, and they came speaking to Israel about turning back to God. A primary message was calling the nation of Israel to repent and turn back to God. Uh, years into Israel, having taken the promised land and living as their own kingdom, they've stretched further and further from God's commands and adopted the beliefs of the nations around them, moved further and further from their center in God. And so the prophets came calling the nation to repent and turn back to God. They spoke of God's faithfulness, that God will relent, that God will bless you if you turn back to him. And further, especially in later seasons as Israel uh, lost its sovereignty, that is, um, Babylon came and took over. They're now a vassal nation. By the time Jesus comes, Rome is the world power, uh, and Israel is under Rome in that season. And the prophets tell them there is still hope. God will bring about redemption and healing. There is hope. And so Isaiah, one of the prophets, in Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verses 6 and 7, uh, the prophet speaks of this hope in these terms. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his kingdom and peace, there will be no end. So this is the promise of Isaiah. A child will be born to us who will rise up into authority, uh, and he will be a wonderful counselor, the mighty God, and the prince of peace. The promise of Isaiah is this child that will be born into the nation of Israel will be their ruler and a prince of peace, that the greatness of the peace that he brings to earth and to this nation uh, will be Un, uh, un, unchallenged, un, unfathomable. Um, the greatness of his peace, there will be no end. So how does God go about bringing this kingdom of peace? God was born in human flesh to bring about peace. And so there's this saying that, as I was reflecting on this, came to mind, that you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family or, or something like that. But imagine, is that what it is? There's another one. I'll, I'll pass it. Oh, sorry. You know, there's a lot of things that I just don't know. <laughs> um. So as I was thinking about this, I was thinking of God Almighty about to be born in human, as a human, and God could choose any family to be born into. Imagine just for a second, you had that power. You had the power to decide um, what family you would be born into, what your family was like, what social status your family had the power and the privilege that you were born in that influenced your wealth, the location of your, uh, your family, basically just the context in which you were born. 
Yeah, and yeah. if the scope of the mission is to change the entire world, to bring hope and healing to the entire world, you'd imagine you've got to start pretty high up the pyramid of power, right? right? To have an effect on all of the world. And yet, this is not what we see God choose. This is not what Jesus chose, the context that Jesus chose. And so that's what we want to look at today. We're going to read a section um, from Luke 2, starting in verse 1, and listen for the context that Jesus chose to enter as he brings about peace. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So this is the context of Luke's telling of Jesus' birth into the world. He tells of this, this census that Caesar is taking. Now, why a census? Uh, Rome has expanded to uh, the majority of the known world in this uh, time in history, and it takes a lot of power and influence and money to sustain Rome as large as it's become, right? So the census is uh, telling the story of Rome attempting to find out how many people live in the different uh, regions that they rule uh, so that they can properly tax the people. The story of Jesus coming into this world is just uh, wrought with the story of the oppression and the power of Rome and Jesus coming in in this humble, vulnerable, non flashy sort of way. We get a picture here of the power structures that existed at this time in the context of Jesus's birth. Um, I have this book that I've, I've been enjoying recently. It's called God Speaks Through Wombs, and it's by Drew Jackson. And Drew Jackson is a pastor in New York City. And he asks the question, what would it look like if the liberative message of the gospel, liberating message of the gospel, which is good news to the poor, gave birth to poetry? And so he writes poetry um, about the stories found in Luke 1 through 8, I think, the first few chapters of Luke. And I want to read to you one of his poems called Census Day. And I think it helps us kind of just enter into the story a bit more and imagine what it must have been like for Jesus's family when they heard about the census and the implications of it. Census Day. Under the canopy of this star-filled sky, there is much on our minds tonight. We've heard the recent news. Another census. More than counting heads. They're counting dollars and cents, calculating just how much they can extract from us again. The Roman Empire Census, Department of Commerce, please accurately answer the following. How many people live in your household? What is your occupation? What is your racial slash slash ethnic background? What are your assets? Falsified answers are considered a punishable crime. The Roman Empire Census Bureau... 
We can't afford to lose any more to Caesar's coffers. They're taking food out of our babies' mouths to feed their war machine. I won't let my labor be used to fuel Roman public works projects. But what if we refuse to report? What do you think they'll do? Drag us into the courts? Deport us from our fields and seize our sheep? No chance. They know they need us, but it's a risk. What I love about that poem, and it helps me just imagine, what might it have felt like? What might it have been like for Jesus' family? As we look at the context of Luke's chapter 2, in the context of the Roman Empire and the census taking place, I'm struck by how the all-powerful, almighty God, the creator of the universe, chose to be born on the underside of society's power structure. I'll say that one more time, that God who has all the power chose to come on the underside of society's power structure. So if you think of a power structure, who has power over other people and who are under the power of others, Jesus chose to come in a family who was under society's power structure. He was born to an unwed Israelite teenager. Jesus was born into poverty. He was born into systemic oppression by the Roman Empire. He was born into a family struggling to survive, doing what they needed to do. And I have to ask the question, why is that? Why would God choose to do that? And I think maybe is because God sees the suffering and the pain of, of the oppressed. He sees the suffering of the pain caused by injustice and violence. And God's heart's desire is to enter into that pain and suffering and to bring about peace. So Jesus, born into the poverty and suffering of the world, uh, inaugurates a new kingdom into being. The idea of an inaugurated kingdom is that it has begun, but it has not come to its fruition. So an inaugurated kingdom in Jesus' birth into this world, a new kingdom is coming into this world. At 30 years old, Jesus began his public ministry, and he started calling disciples and people to follow him, and they did. And thousands of people showed up to see him heal, showed up to hear him speak. And Jesus spoke over and over about this new kingdom, this kingdom of God that was breaking into this world. And he describes it in drastically different terms than people would understand the kingdoms of the world, right? People would understand how Rome operates. They would know the power and the oppression used to hold people down. And yet Jesus speaks of a kingdom that flips all of that upside down, all of the power structures upside down, and there's blessing and hope for the impoverished, for the persecuted, for the hurting in this kingdom of God. So in Jesus' public ministry, as he described this kingdom, he describes it in incredibly different terms. In one particular place, in I believe it's Matthew 6 through 8, is uh, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is uh, describing, uh, amongst other things, this kingdom of God. Jesus, an Israelite man speaking to an Israelite audience, says to them, you've heard it said, do not murder. Now, they, they know this law well. It's from their commandments. In fact, from the Ten Commandments, Israel understands this quite well, and they, of course, have heard this law. And Jesus takes it a step further. He says, in this kingdom of God, it's not just about whether or not you murder. 
because the state of your heart matters in this kingdom as well. So I tell you, not only do not murder, but don't hate your brother or sister, because in your hatred you have already committed murder within your heart. Jesus takes it a step further. He says it's not just about the letter of the law in this kingdom. It's about something different. And when it comes to violence, as opposed to the peace that he's bringing, he says not only don't kill, but choose to live a life without hate. He goes on to say, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemy, pray for your enemy, bless your enemies. He describes a peaceable kingdom that operates drastically different than the kingdoms of the world. And as he describes it, he also demonstrated that peaceful kingdom He, in his interactions. I remember uh, the story of his disciples on the lake, and there's this storm, and Jesus walks out there and, and says, peace, be still. And the quiet takes over, and everything is calm. Or, or if you think about um, the time when right before he's arrested, the people come, the mob comes to arrest Jesus, and, and Peter pulls out a sword and, and starts, you know, fighting. And Jesus says, no, put the sword away, even all the way to his death, where Jesus allows himself to be tortured and crucified on a cross because he knows that his death will bring about peace. So, as followers of Jesus, I want us to hear this clearly because sometimes we hear different messages in society. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He did not choose violence when he could have chosen violence. He taught about love as opposed to hatred. Jesus, our pacifist king, invites us to a kingdom of peace, of harmony, of opportunity, and of hope. Now, we've been speaking primarily about peace uh, as far as peace versus violence, peace versus hate. But again, Scripture speaks of another type of peace as well. It speaks of an inner peace, a peace that will guard our hearts, a peace uh, that will dwell within us. And so in Philippians chapter 4, we see that described, and I want to spend just a moment here that we hear this message as well. Philippians 4 verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the message. We all have reason for anxiety, right? We all have good reasons to be anxious, concerned about what is happening in this moment or what is going to happen later today or this week. We all have cause for concern in life. And yet the promise in Scripture, the invitation in Scripture, is to receive from the Holy Spirit a gift of peace and a peace that passes understanding. That is, when all signs in life say, this is a crisis, when everything in life is bringing about anxiety, we are invited to know a peace far greater than anything we can comprehend, than anything we can imagine. I mentioned this last week, and I'm going to mention it again. I love the, the illustration during Advent of darkness and light. And us lighting the candles because there is darkness. There is, there, there are things that are really hard and there is evil and there is sin in our world and brokenness. And so we see the darkness. 
We're touched by the darkness, right? We've experienced some of that in our lives. And yet, we light candles because Jesus is the light of this world and brings hope and peace. And we'll talk about joy and love. And so, each... um Each Sunday this Advent, we want to spend some time praying for peace in very, uh, very concrete, tangible ways. Um, And so I want to do that today. I'm thinking primarily right now of of relational peace, but maybe you're also thinking of the inner peace. And so in a moment, we're going to have a moment of silence, and you're welcome to pray for either But I'm thinking about the violence that we see so much in our community that's on the rise in the Tri-Cities and also in our nation and in the world. Um, I just, I just read a number that was staggering that there's been 619 mass shootings in the U.S. in this year alone. I, I read another number that uh, the U.S. estimates that over 200,000 military casualties, there's been over 200,000 military casualties in the war in Ukraine from on both sides, Ukraine and Russia. And that's not even counting the uh, civil casualties, the civilian ca- casualties. And then there's so many places, as we read the news, so many places that are either experiencing war or the aftermath of war that lingers so long. Some of the the places that come to mind are Ethiopia and Afghanistan and Yemen and Israel and Palestine and Syria and Congo, and there's so many more. And so as we take a moment to recognize the darkness and the struggle there, I want to invite us as a community to pray for peace. Pray for peace in our homes, pray for peace in our in our community, pray for peace in our nation and in this world. So we'll have a, a little bit of silence where I invite you to cry out to God, be that lament, be that a prayer for peace, whatever that looks like in your heart, and then I'll close us off in prayer. Lord, have mercy on us. When we look around, we see the violence, we see the pain, we see the death, and we lament. We cry out to you as your people, knowing that this is not what you desire, knowing that it breaks your heart like it breaks ours. And so we plead to you for divine intervention, Lord that your kingdom would come, your kingdom of peace would come on earth. And Lord, we know that you like to use people, you like to use your church. And so we ask that you would teach us how to be peacemakers in this world, in this good, beautiful creation of yours that has been corrupted by sin and evil. Teach us what it looks like to be peacemakers, and not just us here at the Vine, Lord, but all, all the communities of Jesus' followers globally. Lord, we pray specifically for comfort for those who are grieving. We pray for provisions for those who are struggling to survive. Lord, we pray for healing 
for the abused and oppressed. We ask that you would grant your wisdom and your compassion to those in power making decisions. Lord, that you would turn turn their hearts towards you and towards love and compassion and away, God, from hate and injustice and violence. Lord, as a community, we cry out to you today. We ask that your kingdom of peace would come and that your will would be done. May your peace reign on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. And so Sarah has described, uh, the way of this world is a violence and pursuit of personal gain. Often our own inclinations lean towards the violence or the hatred or the pursuit of personal gain. We're reminded, though, that the kingdom of God operates differently than this world. And as followers, of, as followers of Jesus, we are invited to be agents of his peace. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in 14, speaks beautifully of this invitation of the work that Jesus has done to bring about peace. For he himself, and this is Jesus, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, suffered, submitted himself to death on a cross, to the violence of the world, to offer peace. To offer peace between us and God, as well as to invite us into his kingdom, in which we get to experience and live into peace with other followers of Jesus and in this world. Jesus, through his death, uh, conquered death and violence, and all that stands against peace and invites us to know peace in this world. And as followers of Jesus, we have this beautiful way of remembering what Jesus has done. In communion, we remember his sacrifice, his body as we take the bread and his blood as we take the fruit of the vine, the, the grape juice. We remember his death and his sacrifice. And as Ephesians 2 described for us, we know that in his death, in his sacrifice, and in resurrection, he has brought about new hope in a kingdom of peace. You see, as we take communion, we remember the relationship between us and God and what God has done for us, what Jesus has done for us. And we also, in communion, declare together. He has risen and there is new hope. We take communion. This is communion with God and communion with each other as we take communion. So I'm going to invite the, the band back up as uh, as we close out today. We are going to take communion and here's how we'll do it. Um, they're going to play a song while we get to our tables and, um, and, and take our communion. Let's bring it back to our seats this time and take communion together, okay? So as they play after I say a prayer, I'll invite you to go to one of the tables at the front or in the middle, uh, if you'd like to take communion with us this morning, and grab a little piece of the bread um, and uh, and a cup with the grape juice, and bring it back to your seat, and we'll take communion together, being reminded of the communal aspect of what we declare in communion today. Know that there are gluten-free options for those that would uh, that that need that.
Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity. In this season of Advent, we remember uh, that Jesus came and is continuing to come in your kingdom, that his peace is our invitation. And this morning, as we remember his body and as we remember his blood that was spilt, God, may we remember uh, that in his death, uh, the um, dividing walls of hostility have been broken down, that we are invited to know peace with you and with others. Uh, God, may we be agents of your peace in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today, we remember and are thankful for his body broken for us. Today, we thankfully remember his blood poured out. God, we thank you uh, for your love, for your sacrifice, um, that, that you came under power, that you chose a life of peace and submission. And God, in all of that, you conquered the greatest power, <laughs> that is death. Um, God, we thank you for an opportunity to remember the hope that comes after death. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, thank you for joining us. Be reminded in the week to come, as you leave this place, as you go to your homes and your workplaces, the Prince of Peace invites you to know his peace and to reciprocate it in this world. Have a blessed week.